We're in 1 Corinthians 8 this morning, verses 1 through 13. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificed food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin... I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we ask and pray in this moment that you would come and be present among us and with us as we open your word and this text that has been speaking to your people for thousands of years. And we ask that in our 21st century context, that you would allow us to gain insight and wisdom, a deeper understanding of what it means to follow after you and to be overwhelmed by your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and to be known by you, God, to be loved by you. Help us to understand that and what it means for us here this morning. Convict and consecrate our hearts, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been going through Corinthians this summer. If you've been around, we're uh, now in chapter 8, which means we've been doing it for a little bit, about this is our seventh Sunday, I think. We have four more sermons left, and then we're going to do a Q&A. So if you've never been around for one of Mosaic's Q&As, there's a spot on the website you can ask questions now as these sermons go along, and we'll end the sermon with me and Kyle up here, and we'll just kind of have this moment uh, where we respond, because there's not always answers to everything you may ask, but we'll give good responses as a community, and we'll dialogue. So we're, we've got a little bit left, but if you remember, we're moving through this like kind of section by section is what Paul's doing through Corinthians, and he's addressing these problems that face the church at Corinth. Our first uh, section or first uh, struggle, controversy, whatever you would like to call it, that we came across was the divisions in the church. There was this uh, separation of people based off of who they were following, who their leader was. And they uh, started to separate and not be in unity with one another. The second thing that we uh, encountered was sexuality or sexual integrity. And that's where we've been. And now we're transitioning in chapter 8 to a new division. It's a division over food. 
So I just want to remind you as we approach these problems, what Paul's doing in each of these sections, we have two more left that we'll discuss, worship and community, things like that. So what he's doing in each one is he's naming the problem that faced the church at Corinth. He is saying that this is how we should respond with the gospel. And then he's giving them this alternate reality or alternate way of being or existing in light of the resurrection. He's saying because of the resurrection, we have the power to do. We are able, we are capable, we get the opportunity to live in this kind of way. It's not an ought to or a command. It's a, a choice or an option. It's a better way of being or existing. And so he's saying you in the power of resurrection have the ability to live in unity with your brothers and sisters that you may disagree with or come from different backgrounds from. You as a follower of Jesus have the power and ability to live with sexual integrity. And now what he's going to contend over the next few chapters is that you, as a believer of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, have the ability to love others for their sake, even if it means the, at the cost of your own preferences or freedoms. And so, what we see in this chapter is a controversy centered around food. Now this is controversial for the Corinthians, but it may be a little bit confusing for us because we don't really have a lot of food regulations. So let's take a moment and sort of tease out what is going on here. I think there are two issues in this passage beyond just the controversy of food. And as we understand the context of what's going on with the food issue, I think it will help us to understand these two bigger issues that apply to us today. First of all, there is a tension in following Jesus of self-sacrifice and freedom in the gospel. Especially, I think, in our modern day, uh, in individualization, individualism, self-care, help, boundaries, uh, the different movements that we've begun to see that are rightfully needed, where we are getting out from underneath oppression, and we're seeing people that are walking away from abusive relationships, and they're being emboldened to do so. They're, uh, we're calling and speaking truth to power in a larger way all across the globe, and we need to do that. But I think that there's a tension with that of also what does it look like as followers of Jesus to know that our call is to pick up our cross and to follow him. And so we're going to kind of tease that out. And that's part of what Paul is wanting to tease out in these chapters is what does your freedom in the gospel, your self-freedom look like and same way holding that intention with the sacrifice to love one another and to give up what is good for you in the way that Christ gave up all to condescend to us. I think the second issue that we see in this passage is uh, probably the way this passage has been the most misused uh, or abused. We just had a spirituality of wine night on Friday, and many of you may think, well, that's interesting. Now we're preaching on 1 Corinthians 8. It was not planned. It's just the way it fell. But if your interaction with this passage is limited, it is probably mostly in regards to someone telling you, yes, 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 I know you have the freedom to drink, but... What if someone saw you and they don't think you should drink? Or they don't think you should, whatever it is that you might think. It's not just drinking, but it's these things, these freedoms that we say, yes, we have them in Christ, but we shouldn't do it because it might cause someone to sin. I think most of you, if you grew up in the church, have probably been told that by this passage at some point or time. Because it's weird to us that we would be talking about food sacrifice to idols because that is not a problem that we face 
nor will it probably be a problem any of us face in our lifetimes unless we spend some time overseas and in different countries where there are gods that take sacrifices. So it may feel off to us, but I think if we look at the context, we'll be able to address some of these bigger issues with a little bit more clear understanding. And so I'll address this as we go. But let's talk about this. Eating meat. We're not talking about veganism or vegetarianism here. There was not a war of ideology of like saving the planet or being healthy or animal cruelty that was going on here. This is not the idea of why there are meat eaters and non-meat eaters, right? The idea is, is that this meat was being sacrificed to idols. So if it was being sacrificed to idols, how then was it being consumed by people in the city, right? So cultural or social context of the ancient Near East, Lots of religions going on, lots of temple practice. This is uh, what we would call pagan religions as well as uh, Judaism. And this is one of the really cool things if you begin to study Leviticus and the Old Testament patterns and what's going on. You hear in Leviticus all of these things where it's like, oh, if you sin two times, you have to bring this. And if you sin in this kind of way, you have to bring a goat and a spotless goat. And if you sin in this kind of way, you have to bring a cow. And depending on your wealth and what was available to you, you could substitute birds. And, and there's bread and there's oil. And if you begin to track these, you begin to look and see that if everyone brings all of these different sacrifices, what you have is a quite very good feast and meal on your hands. You have flour and seasoning and oil and bread and fresh meat. And what they would do is everyone would bring these sacrifices and the family would come and they would offer the part of the sacrifices. And if you read in Leviticus, there's the things that were supposed to be kept and some gets set off to the side for the priest. That's how they got paid and were taken care of for their service to the Lord because they weren't farming and raising animals. And so the priests were cared for by the people of God, by the meat that was brought in. And then the family would stick around and they would eat. But think about it. If you are a family of maybe 12, we'll go with, since this is biblical times. Uh, there are 12 tribes of Israel. So if you're a family of 12, you're married, 24, we're getting up to some kids. You maybe got a family of about 30, 35. If any of you have ever had the joy and pleasure of hauling in a cow that your parents or yourself has got from a farmer, you know you can feed a whole lot more than 25 or 35 people from an entire cow. Even a goat or a deer, I don't know if any of you hunt, if you've caught like shot smaller animals and used it to feed your family, this goes on for a long time. Now, there's no modern refrigeration at this point in time. So what do you do with all of this meat after it's been sacrificed? Well, you invite anyone and everyone that is around to come and enjoy this feast with you. And it's not just a feast of food. It's a feast and celebration of God's forgiveness. Now, that doesn't all of a sudden seem so archaic and uh, backwards anymore, does it? That God would ask us to do these things. Because what he's asking is he's creating a way for those that are poor, those that wouldn't have the opportunity to have food. He's allowing and creating space for them to enjoy. Enjoy. Now, the other religions are doing similar things around them. It's a way for the cities and the people to eat and to be fed. So if you're a poor person, you would not have access to meat. And this isn't all that uncommon in today's world. It's a very normal thing. Like To eat meat, especially to eat good meat, you oftentimes have to spend a lot of money. There's, it's, it's not as accessible as, say, potato chips, right? Like, we seem to get those. Those bags over there don't have any meat in them. There's other food. So, if you're a poor person, you would kind of hang out and linger around these temples to get meat. 
And in doing so, you would probably become indoctrinated and begin to practice and follow along. Why not? They're feeding you. It's who you're hanging out with. It's who you're eating your meals with. There were some markets where you could get meat. So if there wasn't enough people to eat the meat that was sacrificed, they would take the meat and they would sell it at the market and it was a way for them to make a little bit of money so that they could provide more goods and services to the people around them. Now, in a city like Corinth, all of this would have been happening with what we would call pagan religions, not Jewish religions. There, there wouldn't have been Jewish temples. So in some cities, and there's debates in history whether or not there, this is going on in Corinth or not, we in our modern day would call it like a kosher market. There would have been some markets set up where there were large Jewish populations where they would have brought food and meat in that would have been okay for the Jewish people to eat. In a city like Corinth, that wouldn't have been the case. They probably wouldn't have had a Jewish market or a Jewish temple where this was going on. So if you are a Jew or now a converted follower to Jesus and you're trying to figure out whether or not you're supposed to follow Jewish customs and laws, you probably wouldn't have been uh, ha granted access to meat. But if you were a wealthy person, you maybe would have been able to buy some meat from a market that wasn't at the temple sacrifice. But it starts to get mixed up and it starts to get a little bit weird. So this is like the cultural and contextual background of what's going on here. This is why there's a tension here. Some people can get meat and others cannot. And so Paul is saying, listen, I get it. Some of you understand that like, you have access to meat. You have the ability to, to get these things and to enjoy it, to eat it. And no one is telling you you are wrong for that. But there are others who do not have that same kind of access without participating in the pagan religion rituals. They're not able to be separated from that. So what you actually have more than a weak and strong conscience or equally as much in conviction is what is also simultaneously at play in this church is a power dynamic between the wealthy people that have begun to follow Jesus and the poor people. And the wealthy are having access to things that the poor aren't and they're calling it freedom in the, in the gospel. And so Paul's addressing something much bigger than just simply people's conscience. Now, he's also addressing that. Don't hear me like say that that's got nothing to do with this. It has a lot to do with it. But there's a deeper context that's going on here. There's a deeper issue at hand than just like whether or not you should or shouldn't be eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. What he's also addressing is the access to that and the ability and the way in which you could consume that. So if you are a new believer in Jesus, you would probably rightly feel awkward about participating in idol worship just to get some food. So then when a wealthy person can go to the market or have the ability to buy that food, though it was sacrificed to idols and everybody would have known that, but they could buy it and go consume it in their home, you would probably be like, hey, like, what's going on here? Like, I can't eat that. But you can just because you have money? Or you can just because you have the means or the ability to? So there would have been a tension there that was bigger than just a conscious issue. There's a power dynamic here at play. Also, too, think about this. This is just more a practical, kind of obvious example. If any of you have ever walked away from the Lord or following after Jesus and come back, it is natural for you, maybe forever, there are certain things you're like, hey, like, I just, I can't. Like, I can't go there. There's nothing wrong with you going there, but that's too tied to my past. Like, it brings up too much. So imagine you were a Corinthian and you were a part of this and you were 
eating that meat, that meat, the smell of it, the taste of it, the whole way that it was cooked and processed, that would bring a flood of memories of a life that was previous to the life in the gospel. And you would say, like, I just, I can't, I just can't. Alcoholics, right, drug addicts, these types of, like, situations that we find ourselves in, if you've ever been family members with them. Like, sometimes you get to the point to where you can imbibe around them. Other times it's like, hey, we just can't. Because, like, we just can't be exposed to that because it'll just open up too many things. For me, it was like when I, after going through college and spending a lot of time, like, I guess you could say, uh, enjoying myself at a state school as one does, when I first, like, came back to follow the Lord, I got really uncomfortable around certain environments. There, there were certain things. It was just an overwhelm, like, the, the memory association with those environments. And I knew there was nothing wrong with being there. In fact, I think it's really good for believers to be in a lot of those contexts. It wasn't good for me one year removed from, like, kind of rededicating my life to following after Jesus and practicing the ways of resurrection. And I think we all understand this. And so that's at play here, too. And so it would be rude of someone to be like belittling to that person, to, to, to make small of their situation or their story. And so what Paul is going to argue over and over again is that we have to understand this knowledge and this freedom that we have, it has to be balanced in love, it has to be rooted in love, it has to be held in tension with love. If our freedom or our knowledge doesn't push us to love others more than ourselves, then it is not freedom or knowledge in the gospel, but it is freedom in the self. Because the gospel will always seek to elevate and prop up and build up those around us. And in so doing, the beauty of the gospel and what it means to live in Christian community is that we are elevated with the community. But that's the gospel. That's the freedom in the gospels that it would always build up. That is the knowledge of the gospel. And so as you begin to have knowledge of things, as you begin to understand things, you have a choice. And what Paul is saying is knowledge can be used as a weapon to, to belittle, to make small of, or it can be used as a tool to cultivate and build. He's articulating that we as followers of Jesus must use our knowledge and our freedom as tools to cultivate and to build instead of using them as a weapon to marginalize and to ostracize. The other thing he wants to make very clear to us is that the knowledge and the truth that we have is rooted in the Father and the Son and we would say in the Holy Spirit that the triune one God, that this is where our truth lies. Now, there would have been philosophies of the day that would have been competing with this. There was a Jewish idea or philosophy, obviously, that there was one God that they are quoting here in Corinthians. Well, of course we know there is one God. There also probably was a competing philosophy that the Corinth Christians would have been uh, at risk of bringing into their practices of following Jesus, of saying, well, God is in everything. There's truth in everything. And they would have thought that there was freedom in that to say, well, all paths lead to God. And Paul would probably say with them, yes, there is one true God, but there are little gods and little lords everywhere that will rule and reign over you in your life. 
There are idols of our own making. They are not divine beings. They have no power or authority over you except that which you have given to them by creating them. This is the crazy thing about idolatry and sin. is most of what we find ourselves caught up in is the very thing which we have made with our own hands. And we become subservient to those things as we create them and as we process life. Okay? So this is happening with the Corinthians. There are things that they are serving and become servants to that they created the problems. They created these idols. They created the, the different things that are being held against one another. So what Paul is saying is, yes, it is true that these are man-made things. There's no power in them. But we still have to be gracious. We still have to love one another in it. We do know that there is one true God, but he names Jesus the author of life, right? Because he wants us to see that what Jesus did was condescend to us in order that we might have life and freedom. Jesus gave up everything. He had all freedom, all power, all authority to come and condescend to earth. And in so doing, he allowed us to have freedom. And his restraining of himself and his giving to himself over to boundaries and to margins. Imagine existing for eternity's past, being God, one who spoke everything into creation and you become human. That is a restraint on you. That is a boundary placed on you. And we see that tension play out in the Gospels. We see this thing where Jesus is fully human and he is subject to the pain and the suffering of humanity, the difficulties of it. And he does this not because it's the only way that the Father will love him, but because the Father does love him and know him and he does so willingly and he chooses to do so so that we might experience and know that same love of the Father. Because when the Father loves us, when we are known by God, then we step into our full humanity. To be known by God is more than to just have knowledge of God. Paul is always going to talk about this. That it is, in fact, he'll even correct himself. He'll sometimes say, you, are, you know God. Well, you are known by God. He never talks about the knowledge of God here. He talks about the fact that God knows us. And in God knowing us, we are elevated into what we are meant to be as humanity and as creatures. And we experience that love and that divinity and that care for us. And that then means being known is better than knowing, is what Paul, I think, would want to say. Experiencing the love and the kindness of the Father, understanding who God is, is better than having some small kind of narrow view of knowing something about God. I'll say it again. Experiencing or being caught up in who God is, existing in His presence and in His being, in your being, in your existence, being folded in and becoming so enmeshed and intertwined that the two become inseparable is far greater than any knowledge or understanding of God that you might possess. Because here's what Scripture shows us, is that over and over again, our views and our understandings, our small, narrow, human minds, are continually shattered and ripped apart as God works and does something over and over again. 
several years ago, we did something on the prophets, and this one concept has stuck in my mind, that every time the prophets asked that the Lord would rend apart the heavens, what he's asking is that he would tear apart everything which they know and understand, and that he would turn their life right side up in order that they might see rightly and know rightly. So to be known by God and to experience his love and his being and his presence is then to take us and to destroy our pride. The love of God and the experience of it is the death of pride because what you begin to understand and know is that as God loves you, His infiniteness, His majesty, His grandeur, His depth, His breadth, the width and the size of what it means to step into the presence of God is so much bigger than what our small human understanding of it oftentimes leads us to think of. It invites us into something so much more than this little narrow view. And here's the thing. We're going to have these smaller views. We're, we're human. It's all, it's all we can do. Like we can only see things from our vantage point and our perspective. And so Paul, I don't think, is condemning trying to obtain some knowledge and to pursue these things by no means. What he's saying is hold that with the fact that like, that is always going to continually be tore apart as you experience God again and again. I've been on this journey for probably 12-ish years now, like really giving my life over. I had some really great experiences as a child, walked away, and in these 12 years, what I can attest to you is that the more I know, the less I know, okay? Like the more I begin to pursue God and give my life over to Him, the more I like, understand, and I do understand way more than I did 12 years ago. But really, all I've become aware of is how little I actually know. There's a humility in that. We actually had a professor at Beeson that told us that, that our masters, 96 credit hours, guys that have translated the Bible, they tell us, their advice to us is that really all a seminary degree does for you, you, you don't actually master anything other than your mastery of how little you know and understand. All this time studying, and what you begin to see is like, we know so little about who God is because he's a God that surprises us. He's a God that is on the move. He's a God that is wild. He's a God that is big. He's a God that wants to come and be in relationship with you and meet you on your terms and interact with your life and be involved and caught up in your messes and your tragedies and your turmoil. He wants to be a part of it, and he's going to ebb, and he's going to flow with you, and you cannot predict him, and he is not safe, but he is good. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. So when you think that you have a bead on life and a track that says, well, I know, so you should X, Y, Z, he's saying, no, 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 if you think you know, then you don't know. Right? Culturally, we like to say, if you know, you know. But what Paul's saying is if you know, then you don't really know. Because the only thing there is to know is that God is inviting you into a mysterious and wild life with him. And what I can promise you as someone that has walked into that journey, that has been caught up in the wildness of God, is that it is far better than anything you think you might know about that life. And it's why it pains me when I see so many people walk away from God because of a small tiny little view of him or some experience of Christianity that they've had because I go, the, the thing that he's offering you is so much bigger than that. 
And yes, it means that sometimes you're going to have to deny yourself. And there are rules and there are boundaries, but we do it to allow others to experience the bigness and the wildness of our Creator. And so it rips us of our pride. It mocks our freedoms that we think we have. Because it's so much bigger than what we think freedom is. And we're constantly being invited into turning more of that over to God. And in doing so, we're constantly being caught up in His presence and His being. And we're allowing love to overwhelm. And in return, what Paul is asking is to live that love out to others. To allow it to dictate and control that which you do. To experience it fuller and deeper again and again. Because if you think you've got it figured out, guess what? Something happens and the Lord shows up and He confuses you and He confounds you. And we want it to happen. Culturally, it's really in vogue to deconstruct right now. We deconstruct everything. Nothing is sacred. And this isn't me being an old curmudgeon pastor. You can call me that if you want. I'll take it. But... Like, this is just the way we do. Space Jam 2 is getting panned on the internet right now, right? Like, why can't we just let it be, man? I haven't even seen it yet, but let's just let it be. Like, we want to critique everything. Pitchfork is a terrible website. There, I said it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a music review site. Dave Bazan's got a great song where he tears it down. Okay, like, the idea is that we're always critiquing. We're always throwing things. And we're always deconstructing. And we so often think that when we're doing so that we've attained some knowledge, something, some insight that no one else has ever seen before. And what I feel like the Lord is doing is he's saying, yes, you should deconstruct. You should get rid of the small, narrow ways that you've seen me, but don't abandon me. Step deeper into that experience. Let your pride die as you're overwhelmed by my love. The Lord is not concerned about our hand-wringing about what some people on Twitter have to say about the church. Much worse things have been said about the gospel. There's nothing, there's no taunt or, or critique that he's worried about. Read the Psalms. This is David saying that your enemies mock you, Lord. They mock me because they say you're small. And every time it ends with his goodness and his promise to humanity and creation. And it overwhelms. And when it seems like it's not the way it's supposed to be, it shows up and it happens just like he said it would. Find a way to just be, like to let yourself experience that wildness and the bigness of Christianity. Because this is what we can say that is not happening in this passage. This passage is not meant to be a way for us to create a whole bunch of legalistic rules and to say, well, if this offends someone's conscience, then you shouldn't do it. I.e., I'll go back to it, drinking. It's the most common one that I think this passage gets used for. And what I would say is there is context and place where you should have the wherewithal as a believer to go, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that in this space. There's, there's something different going on here. There's something happening, and that would, it would be rude of me to ask the person to do that. If you know someone is bothered by whether it be drinking or maybe even, let's go, like, cooler 21st century, mid-20, late millennials, like, we can cuss because we're Christians, right? It's just words, and we all like to throw our curse words out every once in a while to, like, prove that, like, we're those cool Christians. I do the same thing. It's okay. Don't worry. I've got a joke I do with people on a plane that I'll tell you one day, not in a sermon, Okay. <laughs> 
if someone you know is offended by that, then like, who are you to like, just throw that in their face? That's rude is what Paul's saying. It's love should guide us. It should dictate us. Even the more hot-button topic issues, as you begin to understand and have knowledge of things, and things begin to make sense to you, and you see how the dominoes fall, and you go like, oh, well, like, you're just stupid for not understanding this, or whatever it is like, you want to say to people, and we belittle. C.S. Lewis says this, uh, he says that your knowledge in a debate and an argument may allow you to win in that moment, but you will lose the war for their soul because of the way you belittle them or mock them in your truth. Love does not operate in the realm of knowledge, it operates in the realm of truth, and truth is bigger. It's, it's this way of being and existing that allows us to be caught up in the presence of who God is. And so this passage is not meant to do that. There are lots of people that take a passage like this, and they have, and I don't mean to be pejorative, but they have a small understanding of what God is inviting us into. They miss the wild and large life that God would intend for us to live, and they use it as a weight of oppression on people. And that is not what we're advocating here for. And I don't think that's what Paul would be contending for. Paul would be inviting us into a life that is full of joy and excitement. And what he would say is if you can't do that with a few uh, vices, I don't know what we'd want to call them, joys, pleasures in life, then like you need to check yourself because that's probably not the gospel. You're living in legalism just on another side. But he's not saying like, oh, you should just never do X, Y, Z. In fact, he argues, yeah, you can do it just may not be very wise in some context, some positions. It may cost your brother or your sister something. The other thing that I want to say about this passage briefly, and then we're going to move into our time of communion. A passage like this, or a topic like this, I should say, of self-sacrifice towards the gospel, unfortunately for many years has been used as a tool of oppression and abuse in the church. And I want to name that anytime we talk about it. It is a, another hot topic issue in our culture and our society. And it is one that we need to acknowledge and say, yeah, that's true. The idea of uh, dying to oneself has been used as a way to uh, force people to stay into marriages and relationships where they can be put at harm. It has been used as a tool to convince people that they shouldn't speak truth to power in church contexts like this, where pastors and others will say, well, that's just your opinion, that's just your preference. You need to fall in line. You need to get on board. Self-sacrifice, uh, death to oneself, all of these things, uh, limiting oneself has been used uh, in the church very inappropriately at times. That said... There is a trend, I think, in modern thought, and especially in this idea of freedom of self, and uh, you're your own person, and you should do whatever you want, that whatever makes you happy, and do whatever you just think is a good idea. I think Paul would say to you, well, you can do that, but it's not very wise all the time. And now we're talking beyond just allowing someone to sin, or causing someone to sin, but we're talking about freedoms, that you, you legitimately have them, Okay. And you have boundaries, and boundaries are good, and they're a way that we need to protect ourselves. And we need to, I'm looking in this room, I know a lot of you, Enneagram 2s, 9s, like you need to learn to say no, okay? Like it's, your life is not defined by whether or not you can help someone. Like it is okay to say no to things, to say like, I gotta have some balance, I need some rest. It's okay to Sabbath and to shut your life down uh, in an outward production kind of way and just to be every once in a while. Again, we're not talking about just that but I cannot 
read the Bible, see 2,000 years of church history, or argue within my own self-experience, all three line up for me on this, that there is in some way an inescapable thing, which is if you are going to follow Jesus, you are going to be asked to come and die. And you have to, you have to, because you do not get to experience resurrection if you don't taste of death. And what God is pleading with all of us, what the Holy Spirit, I think, is contending with each and every one of us and all of humanity is to come and experience resurrection life. Karl Barr would say it this way. There's going to be a whole lot of no's. And he wouldn't say it exactly that way, but this is my paraphrase. There are a whole lot of no's so you can experience a deeper and truer yes. So you may have to deny yourself from time to time But it is not because the Lord intends for you to live a small, narrow, marginal life. It is because there is a vast sea of joy and pleasure and hope and peace that he intends for you to exist in. And he longs for you to find your way there. And sometimes that means you have to say no to some things to get there. And so I think the Christian life and the practice of following Jesus and discipleship, it insists that we die to ourselves, that we sacrifice ourselves. And sometimes it's not going to make sense. Sometimes it's going to go counter to worldly wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Sometimes it is going to be difficult and hard. But it's what's asked of us as we follow Jesus. To set aside when we know we are right, politically, theologically, philosophically, practically. There are times when you know you're right and it's okay. You can walk away. You don't have to tell everyone you're right all the time. I think I'm maybe learning this lesson in my mid-30s. Maybe. Sometimes. It's the call of the gospel. And it is the call of the gospel because that is the best example of love and of who God is that we were given on the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is why every Sunday we come to the table and we celebrate God's sacrifice for us. So as the band comes up, they're going to play a song. And what I'm going to invite you to do is to come down. I tried to make a little baby aisle over here. If you want to risk rubbing your back on the concrete wall, go for it. It might leave a little dust on you, but I think you can fit. Uh, So come down these aisles, go around, take a piece of bread and a cup, hold on to those elements, and I'll come back and I'll lead us in the taking of those uh, corporately so that we can do that together and experience of one bread and one cup together. What you are receiving in this moment is God's sacrifice for you. You're receiving the body that is the provision, his body broken for you. You're receiving the cup that is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And in doing so, what we do is we take and mysteriously in some way that we don't understand, but we know that we encounter Jesus in a real and kind of tangible, mysterious way, okay? I'm I'm using the language so that I can have my cake and eat it too. And we embody that. And his presence becomes real in our reception of his body and his blood. And then in so doing, we then get to be the body and the blood, the sacrifice to those that we come in contact with. And all the while, all of us are being caught up in this cosmic story of redemption, And we're being invited into following after Jesus so that we might experience the resurrection of life and the death of our pride. So as the band plays, come receive the body and the blood of Jesus. Amen.